My name is Andrew Leadham. I'm an associate director here at Inspiratia. Welcome back to the next episode of Everything About Hydrogen. A show that converts the technical to the relatable and explores how hydrogen might change the energy world as we know it. And I'm joined, as always, by Patrick Malloy and Chris Jackson here in the Goat Rodeo studio in Washington, D.C., And today we're going to be talking with Graham Cooley, the CEO of ITM Power. Graham, thank you very much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Um, As some of our listeners will know, and others probably won't, um, ITM Power is, I believe, the uh, largest PEM electrolyzer manufacturer in the world today. Um, Perhaps you can tell our listeners a little bit about the sort of story of ITM Power and how the company's sort of gotten to where it is today, and perhaps a little bit about your own story and how you became involved with ITM as well. Thanks very much, Chris, uh, for the introduction and for the offer of being on the podcast. So look, ITM Power was founded in the year 2000. Uh, We were listed on the London stock market in 2004. So ITM was actually the first hydrogen and fuel cell related company on the London stock market. Uh, Back then we were an R&D company. Um, And the journey we've been through is um, from R&D, developing products, developing products that are compliant, Uh, getting our first sales, uh, getting our first reference plant in the field, which is a a very important step, and then developing some significant partnerships. Um, And we work um, with the likes of National Grid and Cadent and Gazuni, uh, particularly Shell and Linda, Toyota and Hyundai. So we've been uh, through that classic journey um, of... um, from technology and R&D all the way through to product uh, with very significant customers. Um, Last year, uh, we did 17 million in revenue. We have a pipeline of 45 million. um, And um, we tendered last year alone, in the last 12 months, 330 million uh, um, of um, responses to commercial tenders. So um, we've, um, we've made that uh, important transition. We are now building the world's largest PEM electrolyzer, which is at the Rhineland refinery. Uh, the customer is Shell. And we're also, we've just announced um, the lease of a factory, which is the largest electrolyzer factory in the world. So uh, with a capacity of one gigawatt per annum. So it's been a very uh, um, exciting journey. Yeah, and, and Graham, I kind of wanted to circle back on that. I mean, you know, 2000 to 2019 is a, it's actually quite a rapid pace of growth for uh, for a developer, for a producer such as yourself or such as ITM. So I wonder if you could maybe speak to what fueled that sort of rapid escalation into becoming one of the big dogs. Uh, let me just start by saying that um, hydrogen... F- From our point of view, hydrogen is all about energy storage and the production of clean fuel. And what has happened in the market um, is that energy storage has become more and more significant as the world has planted up with more and more renewable power. And so what uh, hydrogen has become significantly repositioned in the energy industry as a way of storing renewable power and providing hydrogen for all sorts of applications. Um, and the, the reason that hydrogen is important for energy storage is that energy storage 
is actually a, a very uh, and, and storing uh, uh, electricity is actually a very difficult thing to do because what you're trying to do is store electrons and actually electrons are very very difficult to store um, so what you do with hydrogen is you use an electrolyzer and you turn electrons into molecules so you turn an electron into a hydrogen molecule by splitting water using renewable power and then you have a molecule that is the energy vector rather than an electron and actually molecules are very easy to store electrons are very difficult to store so what you're doing is transforming from a renewable electricity vector into a, a renewable hydrogen vector and and because uh, um, we need more and more energy storage and there's more and more applications for hydrogen. The industry has been building very, very quickly. So, look, uh, ITM has been very successful in developing products in, in the timeline that you've um, outlined. But actually, the most important thing is the way the market has developed. And I think the market is moving for hydrogen and green hydrogen particularly, is moving very, very quickly. Graeme, just, just want to jump in there just very quickly on, on the storage power kind of uh, dynamic. When you're dealing with, uh, I presume, kind of independent power producers or, or utilities, where, where do they see this kind of hydrogen uh, storage to power kind of space impacting their grids? And, and where, where are you finding the most kind of impact in the market? Most hydrogen applications are at very large scale particularly the one of storing excess renewable power. So what we've been talking about with most energy companies is, is what's called power-to-gas energy storage. And it's the principle of using an electrolyzer to balance the electricity grid, taking excess um, energy from the electricity grid, and then putting that hydrogen into the gas grid. The reason that's a very important principle is that the gas grid, just let, if I use the UK as an example, the gas grid is three times the size on average of the electricity grid. So no matter how much excess renewable power you have on the electricity grid, you can store it all in the gas grid. And, and actually, um, the gas grid also needs hydrogen to decarbonize um, and move from a purely methane-based system to a system that also has uh, um, green hydrogen molecules. So w we see great interest all over the world now in power-to-gas energy storage. And what you do with power-to-gas energy storage is you um, combine a problem in the electricity grid, which is energy storage, and the need for the gas grid to decarbonize. And so really it, it, what it's doing is it's joined up thinking between the two largest energy networks, the electricity network and the gas network. Graham, you know, I, I've heard um, similar sentiments from people like Arup who will talk about how um, you know, molecules are much easier to transport than electrons. And, you know, I think that is a well-made point that I think is important. I guess what's interesting to me, though, is at the moment you're increase a pipeline to 300 million pounds um, the fact that you've now leased a one gigawatt capacity site shows signs of scaling um, yet 
I would maybe I'm wrong, but as far as I understand, none of those projects that you have been awarded and that you have currently bid on are actually for major scale power to gas as of yet. I know that there've been a lot of feasibility studies done and I know there are some pilots sort of around the one megawatt to four megawatt scale that are being explored in various places. But but just in terms of the actual projects that are being deployed today that have helped ITM grow from its origins to, you know, one of the leading companies in the space today, where has been the growth so far? And and do you consider that that will still remain your core area of growth for the next five years? Or, or do you think it will be quite rapidly overtaken, as you say, by these much larger scale plays and connecting the power and the gas grids together? In terms of scale, we, um, we started at hundreds of kilowatts. We've been deploying plant at uh, megawatt to up to 10 megawatts in scale, as I mentioned at the Rhineland refinery with Shell. We have now a whole series of 100 megawatt projects announced. So there are many of them. And um, you can look at companies like Nurion and Gasuni and Onji and Yara and Energy and RWE and EnergyNet and Tenant-T, all announcing 100 megawatt scale projects. Um, now, I would just simply say this, that if you're to bid for 100 megawatt scale projects, you need to show that you have the capability to manufacture at that level. And we're one of the few companies now in the world that can handle projects of that size. And so that, that's the first point to make. I, I think that 100 megawatt electrolyzer projects are, for the first time, uh, power-to-gas projects at a truly utility scale. So actually to influence uh, uh, the electricity grid and also to have a significant enough effect on the gas grid, you need to be at that level. So we've moved from uh, projects that have been demonstrating principles, projects that have been uh, proving out performance, to projects that are now uh, um, uh, going through feasibility studies and uh, feed studies. A feed study is a front-end engineering design study, and all of those new projects that have been announced are the next wave, and they are significantly larger, an order of magnitude larger than the projects that have been um, conducted over the last couple of years. On that, um, it, it has been fascinating to watch the sort of growth and scale that you've talked about. Um, you know, for example, it, I thought it was rather amazing hearing about the Asian Renewable Energy Hub, which Macquarie Investors are part of, that's looking at a 13 gigawatt solar and wind uh, deployment with an 8 gigawatt electrolyzer sort of component to that. So the scales are, as you rightly point out, getting a lot bigger. I, I guess mm -hmm. what's interesting though is you know your refinery project is the largest that i believe has reached financial close and that is i think increased from a 10 megawatt to a 20 megawatt um please correct me if i'm wrong but that's still quite some way off the sort of the 100 megawatt sizes and so i guess my sort of uh question right now is of these announcements that have been made how many of them do we sort of feel confident at the moment are you know, the economics makes sense and that there doesn't need to be a sort of significant change in the regulatory environment or incentive to go through. The announcements have made have been made by um, mostly very large energy or chemical companies. I think the very fact that they are uh, keen to announce these projects and show their intentions uh, shows that they're real. And, and um, I, I wouldn't question that they're real, actually. I, I think that... Um, um, the thing to look at is the amount of electrolysis that will be required as we go forward. 
So if you look at the uh, Commission for Climate Change uh, technical report, uh, which was presented to the UK government as recommendations, um, that report says that the UK alone will need between 2 and 17 gigawatts of electrolysis to 2050. So that's um, at the top end of that, that's 17 gigawatts in the next 30 years, which is 500 megawatts per year of build. Um, and the reason you need that much electrolysis is because if you want large-scale, long-duration energy storage, you're going to need to put hydrogen into the gas grid. That's a, a, um, a fundamental tenant of what... Um, the Commission for Climate Change is recommending, and we're seeing all over the world now. So, um, specifically in Europe, with the European Commission looking at the gas package, how to decarbonise gas and continue to utilise the gas grid. And actually, the gas grid is an incredible asset that um, nations around the world own. And actually, it, it, there's a possibility of that gas grid having a whole new role. That, that new role being the renewable energy store um, of their given nation. So I, I would say to you that although these projects sound large, 100 megawatt sized projects, actually the next step is gigawatt scale. So Graeme, just as an immediate feedback talking about the, the natural gas grids, they are the one of the major kind of feedstock kind of supply networks for, for a lot of different industries. I'm just wondering kind of, how do you think hydrogen growth and green hydrogen growth in particular is going to start to affect industrial applications and where do you particularly see ITM in that space? If I go back 10 years, uh, we talked about putting hydrogen into the gas grid and we, we had a, a number of projects with uh, National Grid at the time. National Grid Gas Distribution, now called Caden, is an a, a, a important partner of ours in a project called um, Hyde Deploy. But back then... Uh, this was, without a doubt, a technology push. So we spent our time articulating to gas companies why green hydrogen in the gas grid would be a good thing for the energy system. Uh, we don't need to do that anymore. And, and we've moved from a technology push to a market pull. And, and every gas company that we interact with now understands the need for hydrogen in the gas network, and particularly green hydrogen because it's uh, renewable. So that, that's the first thing. And power to gas is, I think, a, a, a very strongly uh, developing market. But the existing markets for hydrogen are also huge. So 55% of the world's hydrogen is used to make ammonia. So you take hydrogen and nitrogen, you run it through the Harbour-Bosch process and you make ammonia. And then ammonia is turned into the world's fertiliser. So a, a massive market. And we're now looking at m uh, many projects uh, um, around the world where um, ammonia is looking to be decarbonised using green hydrogen. You also have the production of methanol. So methanol today uh, just... Uh, like ammonia, is made by reformed natural gas. So you make the hydrogen by splitting methane um, in a process called steam reforming. It's a very carbonizing process and produces uh, um, hydrogen that's then used for all the chemical industries. So ammonia, methanol, uh, refining, 
steel production, and all of those industries um, uh, need to be decarbonized. So the, the, the pull is not just from uh, um, new industries like power to gas, energy storage and fuel, but also those existing uh, large commodity in, uh, industrial uh, applications where um, one day there'll be a carbon price. And when there is a carbon price, there'll be a great driving force to replace brown hydrogen with green hydrogen. So if I can give you an example, we, we are building a 10 megawatt electrolyzer at the Rhineland refinery, which is a shell refinery. It's 10 megawatts in size. Today, it is the largest contracted PEM electrolyzer. Um, when it's operational, it will make 1% of the hydrogen required for that refinery, 1%. Actually, the refinery uses 180,000 tonnes of hydrogen per year. So it, to decarbonise that uh, um, activity with green hydrogen, we would be looking at um, uh, um, an electrolyzer 100 times the size or, or one gigawatt of electrolysis. That's one refinery owned by one oil and gas company. One of the things that uh, some people um, get a little bit nervous about when we when we talk about or when myself and others talk about hydrogen is that they see it often as a mechanism by people in the oil and gas industry to extend the life of some of their assets and to, you know, arguably extend their sort of core business model. Uh, I guess just for our listeners who maybe are not so well aware, what is sort of, as it were, the the sort of green case for why you would want to use hydrogen electrolysis in refining? What is the sort of um, environmental climate benefits of doing that? And why is that something people should be seeing as a positive development as opposed to seeing it as something that is distracting from moving towards electric vehicles or fuel cell vehicles or some other form of mobility? Yeah, so uh, thanks. A very good question. First of all, I would say that when you turn uh, a renewable power into hydrogen, you, you shouldn't only be looking at the new applications, which is fuel and also power to gas energy storage, but those existing um, uh, uh, processes uh, that, that need decarbonizing, first of all, provide scale. And, and th this is a very important point that um, we've talked all along about the way that the industry is growing and that the scale is increasing. Um, and if you want to develop a new technology, particularly develop scale so that you um, can achieve significant cost reduction, then you should be looking at the existing markets as well as those new markets. And so I think that's the reason why. O oil and gas companies... Um, gas distribution companies, gas transmission companies, all own assets. And those assets store molecules. And today, most of those molecules are methane, and they could be hydrogen. So I think that the gas grid and also the industry for shipping LNG is an existing um, infrastructure that can be reused. It can be repurposed rather than uh, um, having to invest in wholly new infrastructure. One of the key advantages of making green hydrogen, using renewable power to produce hydrogen and put it in the gas grid, is that we import 50% of all of our uh, natural gas. It either comes in by pipeline or by ship. 
And actually, you can make the hydrogen with your own renewable power. It benefits the balance of payments and also means that the UK is not importing carbon molecules from other countries. So I, I think it's very important for the energy industry to relook at the way that it uses energy gases um, and, and understand that um, with the richest wind resource in Europe, we can be making our own energy gases um, in the UK and there'll be low carbon energy gases. Graham, I wanted to also uh, drill a little bit more down into the hydrogen technologies themselves, you know, the, the various technologies uh, that are out there, mm -hmm. because ITM Power, of course, is a uh, PAM electrolyzer uh, specialist, and there are others out there. You know, why why PEM? Why why is it superior to SMR? What are the comparative advantages? Whatever the competing technologies would be for our listeners to understand why PEM is the one that ITM has focused on. Yeah, so we're particularly interested in PEM electrolysis um, for making green hydrogen. So why green hydrogen, first of all? So um, the, the standard industry method of making hydrogen uh, today is SMR. That's uh, steam methane reforming, uh, where you uh, mix um, methane with steam, you put it through a reformer, and you, you make hydrogen, but you also make carbon dioxide. Um, now, um, the, the only way that you can compare green hydrogen uh, w with SMR is if you also use uh, carbon capture and storage. Um, now, the problem with carbon capture and storage is A, the cost, and B, that you are still running a methane network. And the problem with running a methane network um, and making hydrogen is that you're now having to handle three gases. You have to handle methane, you have to handle hydrogen, and you have to handle CO2. And the, the fact that you're still handling methane means that you still have um, gas leaks. And, and you know, um, if you have gas leaks, then you have a gas which is a very significant greenhouse gas. In fact, methane is 30 times more potent as a greenhouse gas than CO2 is. So our view is the best way of getting to net zero is not carrying on using methane and steam reforming it and trying to store the CO2, which has its own problems and its own costs. You begin um, by producing green hydrogen made from renewable power. So um, today, electrolysis and green hydrogen is an emergent a part of the hydrogen market. Why, why use PEM electrolyzers? Well, um, alkaline electrolyzers are, are less flexible than PEM electrolyzers. You can't turn them on and off rapidly, so you can't use them for grid balancing. Uh, they're much larger, so the footprint is larger. And we get the best performance when you look at size, efficiency, and also cost. So, Graham, uh, I just uh, want to pick up on that grid balancing question. I saw that ITM announced a partnership with Open Energy recently to try and utilize yeah. some of your electrolyzers more efficiently to provide grid services. Um, yeah. I think for some of our listeners that maybe aren't so aware, um, you know, people are just about getting used to the idea that lithium ion batteries can 
improve the economics of their sort of proposition for developers and for investors when they can provide grid services. But people probably aren't aware that PEM technology can do some of those aspects as well. So can you maybe touch on sort of why the partnership with Open Energy and some of the other grid services that ITM have been working with companies to provide? We have um, deployed PEM electrolyzers in the field that have been bid live into primary and secondary grid balancing. So grid balancing is the principle of turning on and off a load very, very rapidly. And if you can turn a load on, very, a load on and off very rapidly, then you can use it to absorb the fluctuations um, in the electricity grid. Um, now, if you do that with a battery, a battery is a good device for grid balancing and energy storage if you only want an hour of energy storage. If you want more than an hour, if you want long duration energy storage, particularly if you want long duration at massive scale, then the way to do it is, is, is hydrogen. And when I say the way to do it, not only is it uh, technically better, but it's also better from a cost point of view. So, so here's the reason why. It, a battery stores all the energy inside the battery, inside the device. And, and the batteries are one-hour devices. So if you buy a battery, you can store. If you buy, let, let me give you the example of the um, 100 megawatt battery in Australia. It actually has 100, it can absorb 100 megawatts at any one time, but it has a storage capacity of 127 megawatt hours. That means after 1.27 hours, it's full. Okay, that means you can't store any more power in it and you have to wait for a discharge event. Now, the difference with hydrogen is that when you use an electrolyzer, you don't store any of the energy inside the device. You store the energy in the gas grid. And the gas grid is a tank that's three times the size of the power grid. So I can run the electrolyzer all day, all year, as long as you want. I can turn it on and off in a second, and I can turn it on and leave it on for three days, turn it off in one second, and back on again. And you can do that because there's no energy stored in the device. It's stored in the gas grid. Okay, so if, I, if you want one hour of energy storage, buy a battery. You want two hours of energy storage, you buy a battery. Two and a half hours is around the crossover point, and then anything after that, from two and a half hours up to two and a half years, you use hydrogen because it's more economic to do so. Graham, just as a, a kind of a general focus, we've talked an awful lot about the, the gas grid and the, the, the kind of blending to transition uh, structure. There's a lot of guidance, there's a lot of reporting on this, uh, particularly in the US. Uh, NREL have guidance that says five to 20% blend you know, depending on the, the composition of the, the streams, but also with no impact on end user. Can, can you speak a little to that transition uh, to the, the kind of the costs and constraints around the, 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 the movement of the gas grid over the next, say, 50, 5 to 15 years, 20 years, how the network needs to adjust to a, a higher hydrogen content and maybe in its, in its end, uh, an entirely green hydrogen network? So in the transition of the gas grid from uh, methane to hydrogen. A, 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 a good, um, a, an interesting um, example is what happened in 1969. 
So in between 1969 and 1960 and 1974, the gas companies went round and changed the burners in everyone's houses. So the, the reason that they did that was because prior to 1969, our gas grid had 55% hydrogen in it. It was called town gas. Um, and uh, in fact, there are many gas networks around the world that still use town gas. And, and um, it's, it's referred to in the chemical industry as syngas, uh, but it's 55% hydrogen. The reason we changed everyone's burners is we moved from town gas um, to methane. And methane has a different flame speed to hydrogen. And so we had to change the burners in people's houses. Now, what, we, we, what is being envisaged now is to put more hydrogen into the gas grid um, and, um, in a sense, move back towards um, a, a hydrogen blend in the gas grid that we had many years ago. What we wouldn't want to do is have to change the burners in everyone's houses as we build the volume up. And, in fact, you can put 20% hydrogen into the gas grid without needing to make any modifications to end-user devices. And, and we have an important project in the UK uh, with Caden, the Northern Gas Networks, called Hydeploy. And in that project, we're looking at putting 20% hydrogen into the gas grid in Kiel. That's phase one of the project. Phase two of the project, which is shortly to start, is to put... Um, a, a, to add uh, renewable hydrogen into the open gas grid. And so the HSE in the UK uh, have um, outlined in an important report that they did a couple of years ago that you can put up to 20% hydrogen into the UK gas grid. So if you look around Europe, you'll find that you can put 10% into the gas grid in Germany, 6% in France, most countries in Europe are around 5% hydrogen. Um, and even the Netherlands, you can put 12% hydrogen into the gas grid. I am sure that uh, amongst the three of us, we could keep you on the phone for the next uh, four hours with, <laughs> with follow-up questions. But I'm, I'm mindful of the fact that uh, you have a busy schedule. So I want to just quickly wrap up with the question that's on every American's mind for sure. ITM Power as a uh, as a British company and as a major force in the energy market in the UK, how do you guys see Brexit or the possibility of Brexit affecting uh, affecting the the industry? So the effect of Brexit on the energy industry is not clear at the moment because Brexit's not clear at the moment. So I, I think um, if we look at the, a variety of different scenarios, when Brexit um, and the vote was announced, the exchange rate and the pound became weaker. And actually, that was very beneficial for ITM Power because we are actually an exporter. So um, I, I think um, you can look at tariff structures, you can look at exchange rates, and you can look at legal compliance. They're the three things that we look at when we look at Brexit. Um, also, there's great support in the EU for hydrogen technologies, and, and uh, the uh, fuel cells and hydrogen joint undertaking of the EU funded a lot of our early hydrogen projects in the UK. In fact, of the refueling stations, that were funded in the UK, 
Most were funded by Europe. Um, so I, I, uh, I think that um, I, I, um, I, I think that um, the, the position to do with Brexit right now is unclear. Uncertainty is never good for industry, and certainly um, the uncertainty has been going on for some considerable length of time. Um, I, how will it affect ITM power? Um, I, I think that there's more and more interest now, um, industrial interest in hydrogen, and we're moving now from having projects which have been funded by the EU to straight commercial sales. So as the industry becomes more and more commercial um, in the UK and around the world, I think the effect of leaving the EU on ITM uh, 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 will be certainly moderated. Excellent, excellent. I think that wraps up most of the questions uh, that we wanted to touch on, but we always like to offer <laughs> for our guests touch on anything that we may have missed or any items that you think are of particular interest. Yeah, okay. From my point of view, um, I think hydrogen is an incredibly important part of uh, the mix of energy and energy technologies that are required to get the world to net zero carbon. Being able to store renewable power and being able to produce a gas which you can use to replace methane in industrial processes for and use it for renewable heat and for transport it is an incredible device to move the world to net zero carbon. And hydrogen is the only fuel that does not contain a carbon molecule. And so to me... Um, it looks like the, a very, very logical next step in the way that we develop the energy industry. The energy industry used to be based on coal, which is a complex of carbon molecules. Then it was based on oil, which is a long chain of carbon molecules. Then it was based on methane, which is a single carbon molecule. It, in the future, will be based on hydrogen, which has no carbon molecule. Well, thank you again, Graham, for, for making the time. And uh, it's been an absolute pleasure speaking with you. And uh, we hope uh, you'll come back and join us in another episode sometime down the road. And we are uh, very, yeah. very interested to watch the uh, incredible progress of ITM power and the hydrogen industry in general. So thank you again for, uh, for joining us. Thank you very much, Graham. Have a wonderful day. Thanks. Bye. So I guess I would want to get your guys' thoughts on what you guys heard from Graham. That sounds like the Rhineland project is is massive. Is, is that a, a particularly revolutionary project? Is it the first of its kind in the PEM electrolyzer world? Or how does how do you guys think of that? I mean, as far as I understand, when it is installed, it'll be the largest PEM electrolyzer in the world. But I think that record will fall quite fast. Um, my understanding is that there are already a number of other um, major sort of projects at scale that have already been announced. Um, they, I don't believe, maybe are as advanced as this particular project is. This project was announced uh, a little while ago now. But, but I think it is uh, revolutionary in the sense that uh, what it is doing in quite an interesting way, and, and, and Graham didn't really have time to go into it, but just for our listeners, um, the, the refinery that ITM are working with, Shell's refinery, is Shell's largest refinery in Europe, as far as I understand it. And 
essentially it's in an area where there's quite a lot of renewable uh, power produced and there's actually quite a lot of grid constraints um, from periods where they are producing too much wind or too much solar or both. So one of the things that's quite interesting is that the electrolyzer actually allows the grid operator in the area to manage the uh, high levels of power coming from wind and solar as well as allowing Shell to be able to make a financial return from the grid operator for helping to balance some of the issues there and providing a zero emission source of hydrogen to help decarbonize some of the refining process that's happening there. Um, and I think the refining piece is interesting, as, as Graham's have talked about, because it does get to the heart of one of these early questions, which is scaling. So um, this is probably the best known announced refinery project. But BP also announced a 250 megawatt feasibility study for a huge electrolyzer project at one of their refineries in northern Europe, um, trying to really play on the same idea. Uh, that potentially one of the ways you could help Europe to decarbonize its transport sector in the next five to 10 years would be actually to find ways of making the whole production of petrol and diesel far less carbon intensive. And uh, it's an area that wasn't really thought about too much. But now, as people are realizing some of the challenges with batteries and even with fuel cell vehicles, uh, it's being seen as more of a credible intermediate step to scale hydrogen up and to reduce some of the emissions in the sector as well. To speak more generally to, to what Graham talked about, I think we have a, a very substantial uh, PEM manufacturer giving us a pathway towards mass transition between exactly as Chris has outlined, the, the refining applications. Uh, we've also talked about a very clear mechanism by which you get hydrogen to market using natural gas grids. And, and the blend transition, whether it be 6% or 10% or 20% in the UK or whatnot, means that there's infrastructure readily available to move hydrogen to market. That has direct implications for industrial users, that gives direct access to the pre-existing markets, whether it be ammonia or whether it be as an input or a feedstock, whether it be uh, similar to the, the, the electrolyzer on site with Shell uh, in terms of uh, changing the, the nature of the hydrocarbons or, or indeed um, basically being a tackle point against um, peaker infrastructure. And that's where this gets <coughs> kind of a little bit, a little bit, a little bit crazy, but also a little bit kind of, kind of amazing, in that the consequences of having a resource that you can produce, a single single input resource that you can produce, that is rampable, and that, this is the strength of PEM over other kind of technology types. The fact that it's rampable, it has a, a an ability to to be a dynamic resource. Um, I like to compare it to the idea of a, a pump hydro facility in, in electric uh, electricity storage, right? You, you take a low price position, you produce the hydrogen, you get a high price position, you sell it back into the electricity grid through whether you use a fuel cell or whether you, you use some form of combustion or generator or whatnot. That now notionally applies to a whole heap of sectors because hydrogen hydrogen using methane is, is or sorry hydrogen production using methane is dependent on a, a, a gas price or a heavy fuel oil price or a coal price for gasification or it, or indeed is dependent on other kind of feedstock prices whereas the dependent price uh, for electrolyzer manufacturing of hydrogen is the electricity price consequently when we talk about renewable rollout 
and we talk about you know you know targets of thirty megawatt or thirty dollars a megawatt hour or you know kind of similarly low historically low pricing. Um, we're talking about a resource that as production capacity builds out, as financing improves, as supply lines improve, and as the technology matures, the capex is going to drop. And consequently, the actual inputs, i.e. water and and electricity, one of those is declining in cost at a rapid rate as well. That is why this is a compelling argument towards decarbonizing industrial input or the industrial inputs uh, that we then require for end users. This has a direct line all the way through. And Graham very, very effectively spoke to the mechanisms by which that transition could occur. I mean, I I think um, there's a lot I I agree with there from Patrick. I I think the one thing that um, certainly you'd get some pushback in industry and it's it's becoming quite interesting area of discussion is this idea of um, whether PEM is necessarily more flexible than some of the more modern alkali and electrolyzer technologies. And I think for our listeners, sometimes this can maybe seem a little bit nerdy, but uh, the important thing to recognize here is that alkaline electrolyzer technology is... <laughs> I don't think it's is... the only part of this podcast that strikes people as nerdy, Chris. Well, I mean, it is a podcast about hydrogen, so um, they, yeah. they let themselves in for it. Yeah, they knew um, what but, they were you know, getting. But, right. But but alkaline electrolysis is, is a very old technology, um, you know... Uh, we, I believe, are going to have uh, Nell ASA on at some point. They are um, Norsk Hydro's former electrolyzer business. Um, you know, Norsk Hydro in the 50s built a 120 megawatt uh, alkaline electrolyzer that was running until the 1990s. Um, you know, there are a lot of there's a lot of experience, a lot of projects with large scale alkaline electrolysis in the past, which makes it very very cheap. And in fact. Uh, today, um, actually, the largest electrolyzer deployed in the world today is over 20 megawatts, and it's based in Malaysia, but it's it's an alkaline unit. It's not a PEM. So I, I think one of the things just to remember is I don't think it is necessarily going to be the case that PEM will be the answer for all of uh, these solutions. I think the flexibility piece is important, but I don't know, especially for the industrial applications where you're providing really significant quantities of hydrogen, whether that will be the key issue. Um, what what I do think is staggering, and we probably didn't talk about it enough, is the fact that um, ITM have now leased capacity to manufacture up to one gigawatt of electrolysis capacity annually. Um, and for people who don't really know much about the space, um, other market participants estimated earlier in 2019 that the entire global manufacturing capacity for uh, alkaline uh, electrolysis would be you know, alkaline and PEM electrolysis would be in the low hundreds of megawatts, uh, you know, anywhere between 100 to maybe uh, 400 megawatts. So what we're really talking about is a, you know, between two and tenfold increase in global manufacturing capacity from one company. Um, and I think that really does illustrate very graphically, not only uh, the opportunities available in this space, but just how quickly you know, this is within six month time frame. I mean, how quickly that mentality around hydrogen being a fringe but interesting concept towards it being a mainstream concept that companies want to deploy and are investing in has happened. But I suppose maybe one thing that we we had in the questions for Graham, one of the things I wanted to ask him about is the, you know, the deployment uh, trajectory and the, the deployment possibilities uh, for PEM technology such as ITM's in emerging markets as a as a uh, quickly dispatchable grid option uh, does it make sense at this point 
does it compare with other energy storage uh, options like a large scale lithium ion battery being deployed in uh, in emerging markets? I mean, what do you guys think about that? So there's a critical kind of distinction that that, that we can make between some of the developed market opportunities and emerging market opportunities, right? In that, in in a lot of ways, the conversation today kind of orbited around the repurposing of the natural gas infrastructure. That that presupposes you have a fully developed natural gas infrastructure, right? Yeah, that's exactly. I wanted to ask him about that and kind of lead into this deployment question. But, you know, I had to ask the Brexit question. But there is a real question that has to be resolved, but as to whether this is a distributed resource in terms of its production or whether it is a centralized resource in its production. And then consequently, distribution and logistics dynamics change uh, depending on what the market looks like or whatnot. Consequently, if, if you are in an emerging market that you know, hypothetically doesn't have a natural gas infrastructure, you know, it, it makes sense that you could have a distributed resource. This starts to look like a little what Nicola's plan for their, um, their fueling stations for their, their trucks looks like, which is independent production on site. There is a company called Gencell who do um, a kind of ammonia fuel cells, drop them. Uh, I think they run for about a year. Uh, just straight through producing power and I believe water as a as a, the kind of the byproduct of it, um, and they are as far as I know targeting some kind of emerging markets and particularly kind of low infrastructure build out. The other advantage of the distributed infrastructure or sorry the distributed production version of this is that you don't have the need for the infrastructure build out, which means that all the money that you would normally spend building your transmission lines or your gas pipelines can now actually go into producing power on site or producing a kind of water resource or et cetera, et cetera, combined heat and power solutions. You're right, Andrew, we didn't really get into the distribution. And I think both you and Patrick have hit the nail on the head with regards to sometimes these conversations um, with sort of more uh, developed market players can become very um, developed country focused and you know repurposing a gas grid is great when you have a gas grid as you rightly mentioned um, it, it is worth pointing out though that I mean you do see decentralized electrolysis for industrial applications already quite widely um, you know I touched on this a little bit before but you know it, you can go to uh, Malaysia, Cambodia, Vietnam, Zimbabwe, Kenya, Costa Rica, Brazil, and you will find alkaline electrolyzers running there um, for industrial purposes today. So I, I think what really Patrick's actually driving at more is not so much um, is there a market for um, decentralized hydrogen production, because in a sense, there already is one today. It, I think it's more a case of um, can that market become bigger for industrial processes and can we also find decentralized applications for energy um, from hydrogen and i think the early evidence seems to be that we are seeing signs of that Um, so we do have hydrogen electrolysis for um, electric uh, sorry for fuel cell mobility in costa rica and in malaysia Um, there are a number of projects that are underway in uh, countries like thailand um, you're also seeing projects in Brazil that are being looked at. China, of course, I know um, China is always a slightly difficult one when we talk about developing countries, but it, but it is still very much a developing nation. And there are a lot of decentralized applications they're looking at. So I, I think you will definitely see some of that. Yeah, well, I think that uh, covers pretty much everything for today. 
Just want to say very quickly, many, many thanks to Graham Cooley, CEO of ITM Power, for making the time to, to chat with us from uh, the UK today. And uh, thank you, Patrick and Chris, for joining me on, the, uh, on this episode as well. So I also want to thank our listeners and uh, also let you all know that everything about hydrogen is now available on the Apple Podcast Store and on Spotify. So please check us out there and uh, also give us a positive review. Andrew, you might also want to tell our listeners where they can find us on social media. Thanks for the reminder, Chris. Yes, we are on Twitter these days, guys. We've joined the 21st century. So the handle is at about hydrogen and we have rapidly shot up our follower list from one to 17. So all looking pretty exciting. 17x growth in 24 hours? Amazing. I know. Pretty good.